the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back in the studio uh, from the Restored Hope Network conference, which was, uh, to put it in a word, excellent. I'll tell you more about that on another occasion, but it was uh, really a highlight for me uh, to have been a part of that event. Um, today on the program, we're going to revisit a conversation I had on the book, Start with Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping uh, the End in Mind. So that will be in our five o'clock hour. So you might want to stick around for that. Uh, by the way, happy Juneteenth. Now, this is an occasion that's observed on the 19th of June. Get it? Juneteenth to commemorate the end of slavery in the United States. It was also known as Freedom Day or Emancipation Day. Well, it didn't uh, end on that date, but that was the declaration upon which it was to end. On June the 19th, 1865, Major General Gordon Granger came to Galveston, Texas, to inform the reluctant community there that the president, then Abraham Lincoln, two years earlier, two years earlier, had freed the slaves and to press locals to comply with his directive. Well, according to Juneteenth.com, there was... uh, uh, no one reason um, why there were a two and a half year delay. There's no single uh, reason one can point to in letting uh, Texas know about the abolition of slavery in the United States. The historical site says that some accounts place that delay on a messenger who was murdered on his way to Texas with the news, while others say that the news was deliberately withheld. We don't know which version is true. Uh, despite the delay, slavery did not end in Texas overnight, as one might uh, have suspected, according to an article by Henry Louis Gates, Jr., originally posted on The Root. He said that after New Orleans fell, many slavers, they traveled to Texas with their slaves to escape regulations enforced by the Union Army in other states. The owners there were placed with the responsibility of letting their slaves know about the news, and some delayed relaying that information until after uh, the harvest. In other words, it was in their uh, worst self-interest to relay a message that would deprive them of the labor they had enjoyed without pay their slaves. Well, Juneteenth is, as I mentioned, a combination of June and 19th uh, in honor of that day um, that Granger announced the abolition of slavery in Texas. This is also the date, the 52-year anniversary of the signing of the Civil Rights Act. So this is uh, within the African-American community, and I would hope beyond an important day in our nation's history. While I was in um, uh, in San Diego, I learned of the tragic events that took place involving a Navy vessel. Seven American soldiers were killed at sea. I also learned about seven American soldiers attacked in Afghanistan, which reminds us. And of course, San Diego is very much a Navy town. There's military reminders everywhere. But this is a difficult time for the U.S. military. As I mentioned, seven U- American soldiers were killed on Friday 
And the commanding officer there was was seriously injured when a U.S. Navy destroyer inexplicably crashed into a huge container ship off the coast of Japan. And when I say crash, it gives you the impression that the Navy vessel hit the container ship. It was the other way around. The ship hit the Navy vessel and investigating why that happened. Uh, is what uh, is the focus of the investigation at this point. The USS Fitzgerald was extensively damaged. Vice Admiral Joseph Acoin, the commander of the 7th Fleet, told a news conference on Sunday, heroic efforts prevented the flooding from catastrophically spreading, which could have caused the ship to founder or sink. It could have been much worse. Well, it wasn't much worse. We're grateful for that. But seven uh, sailors lost their lives. And after 15 years of war in Afghanistan, American soldiers are still coming under fire from the Afghans there, uh, supposed to be uh, helping. Seven Americans were injured on Saturday there when an Afghan soldier shot at them in an Afghan National Army base. A week earlier, three other American troops were killed in what is believed to be another insider attack. So uh, two tragic events involving military um, service uh, members. The USS Fitzgerald hit the Filipino container ship at about 2.20 a.m. local time on Friday, a coin said in his uh, remarks regarding that collision. The weather was clear. The, the commanding officer was asleep below decks when this cabin took a direct hit. Seven sailors died in their flooded berths below deck. The commanding officer also was trapped inside his cabin, a coin said, but eventually he was freed and flown by helicopter to a Japanese hospital. Efforts to free the trapped sailors were unsuccessful, and it wasn't until after 24 hours that they were, in fact, uh, reached. The collision caused significant damage under the Fitzgerald's uh, pilot house, a large puncture below the ship's waterline, opening the hull of the uh, to the sea. At least three investigations will be conducted. Uh, it is a reminder, however, that when uh, men and women in uniform are serving this nation, it doesn't matter if they are in armed conflict, it is a dangerous uh, line of work, and they're willing to put themselves in harm's way in order to protect the interests of the United States. It's very sobering to me to consider that and to um, to remember to keep them generally in prayer. Well, the U.S. Navy fighter jet shot down a Syrian government warplane after it attacked Washington-backed fighters near ISIS, their de facto capital of Raqqa, this according to the U.S.-led coalition on Sunday. In a statement, the coalition headquarters in Iraq said that an F-A-18E Super Hornet shot down a Syrian Su-22 that had dropped bombs near positions that were held by Syrian Democratic Forces. Well, the statement said coalition aircraft had conducted a show of force to turn back the attack by Syrian leader Bashar Assad's forces uh, in the town of Jadin, south of Tabqa, uh, which means very little to most of us since we don't know that geography. But the coalition said the uh, shootdown uh, took place in accordance with the rules of engagement and in collective self-defense of coalition partnered forces. Well, the statement said a number of uh, SDF fighters, these are Syrian defense fighters, were wounded in the regime's attack, uh, but did not specify further. The coalition also said that Russian officers had been contacted on a special deconfliction hotline in their effort to halt the assaults. Well, the coalition's mission is to defeat ISIS in Iraq and Syria, the statement said. The coalition does not seek to fight Syrian regime, Russian or pro-regime forces partnered with them, but will not hesitate to defeat coalition or partner forces from any threat or to vend them rather from any threat. The statement went on to call for all partners in Syria's complex and bloody six-year-long civil war to focus their efforts on the, to, on the effort to defeat ISIS, which is our common enemy and the greatest 
greatest threat to regional and worldwide peace and security. Well, the U.S. defense official says that the Super Hornet that shot down the Syrian jet was based on board the USS George H.W. Bush, which is currently operating in the Mediterranean. The official didn't say which weapon was used to shoot down the Syrian plane. But not surprisingly, Russia responded with a threat of its own uh, moving forward. This this effort to communicate so that these conflicting um, uh, goals and priorities would not result in the shoot down of uh, those uh, aircraft that are in the air and aren't necessarily directly our enemies. In other words, this deconfliction uh, agreement, uh, as followed by the United States, has now not been uh, accepted by the Russians. Well, the U.S. pilots uh, operating over Syria won't hesitate to defend themselves from Russian threats. That's what the Pentagon spokesman said today. In the latest escalation between the two superpowers since the U.S. jet shot down that Syrian aircraft on Sunday, we do not seek conflict, but we will address it if it comes. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, doubled down on that rhetoric during Monday's speech at the National Press Club. We'll tell you more about that and what the Russians say they are prepared to do if uh, similar events uh, are to occur in the future. 16 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We were talking about the, um, the fact that a U.S. Uh, plane downed a Syrian jet and the Russians are doing a bit of saber rattling. Uh, they first cut communications with the United States and Syria, threatening to, to uh, target uh, coalition forces, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, doubled down on his rhetoric, saying that we are prepared to do what's necessary to protect our allies on the ground and our flyers in the air. Department of uh, Defense spokesman Major Adrian uh, Galloway said coalition aircraft would continue conducting operations throughout Syria, targeting ISIS forces, providing air support for coalition partner forces on the ground. As a result of recent encounters involving pro-Syrian regime and Russian forces, we have taken prudent measures to reposition aircraft over Syria so as to continue targeting ISIS forces while ensuring the safety of our air crew given known threats in the battle space. Uh, well, earlier on the in the day, this is today, local time, Russian officials threatened to treat U.S.-led coalition planes flying in Syria west of the Euphrates River, uh, considering them to be targets. The news came one day after that first time in history a U.S. jet shot down a uh, Syrian plane. The last time a U.S. jet uh, shot down another country's aircraft came over Kosovo, and that was in 1999 when a U.S. Air Force F-15 Eagle shot down a Serbian MiG-29. Well, on Sunday, it was a U.S. F-18 Super Hornet that shot down a Syrian Su-22 after that jet uh, dropped bombs near U.S. partner forces, which we are committed to protect. Russia's uh, defense minister also said Monday it was suspending cooperation and coordination with the U.S. and Syria over so-called deconfliction zones after the downing of that Syrian jet. The United States and uh, Russia, which have been providing air cover for Syrian President Bashar Assad since 2015 and his offensive against ISIS, have a standing agreement that should prevent an in-air incidents involving U.S. and Russian jets engaged in operations over the country. Well, the Russian defense minister said it viewed the incident as Washington's deliberate failure to make good on its commitments under the deconfliction deal. Well, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei uh, Ryabkov, uh, in comments to Russia's news agency, compared the downing to helping the terrorists that the United States is fighting against, which um, what is this? if not an act of aggression, he went on to say. Meanwhile, the U.S. blocked uh, opposition 
uh, said Assad's forces have been attacking their positions in the northern province of Raqqa and warned that if such attacks continue, the fighters will take action again. Would just tell you that we'll work diplomatically and militarily in the coming hours to establish a deconfliction. But in the absence of cooperation in that area, the United States is prepared to do uh, what it has already done. Meanwhile, the uh, president met with the leadership from Vietnam, deepening our ties during the prime minister's uh, recent visit. The uh, May summit between President Trump and the Vietnamese prime minister uh, demonstrated the extent of uh, warming relations between the Vietnamese and the United States. Over the past two decades, the country's relations have been relatively stable with converging interests in economics, military affairs, geopolitics. This relationship will prove to be particularly important as both countries contend with China's expansion in the South China Sea. Well, hours after meeting with the president, the prime minister spoke with the Heritage Foundation about Vietnamese-American relations and Vietnam's security concerns. During his speech, the prime minister touched on several uh, shared U.S.-Vietnamese interests. He commended the trading of technology and produce, the signing of $15 billion in contracts, the investing of $10 billion to American projects in Vietnam, and the expanding of tourism and education. Well, according to U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, part of the deals include a $3.4 billion investment in goods manufactured in the U.S. that support 23,000 jobs. Well, the prime minister also mentioned that investments between the two countries continue to be signs of good relations with 850 American projects already in the country worth some $10 billion. And Vietnam issued licenses um, making way for 50 to $70 million projects in America. Well, converging military interests are also uh, bringing the two nations closer, despite their embattlement in the Vietnam War decades ago. Well, the White House announced that the U.S. and Vietnam pledged to strengthen defense ties under the 2011 Memorandum of Understanding on Advancing Bilateral Defense Cooperation and the 2015 Joint Vision Statement on Defense Relations. One of the most noticeable agreements in recent months is the delivery of six patrol boats and a decommissioned U.S. Coast Guard Hamilton-class cutter. More measures to expand maritime security have also been in the talks between the two countries. Now, it's interesting in the broader historic context to consider that China was North Vietnam's um, major ally, and now Vietnam's partnership with the United States is at least in part um, to uh, serve as something of a counterweight to the expansion of uh, China's power in the region. Sort of an interesting um, Development over the decades since the Vietnam War. Well, the president says he is going to reverse the damage done by President Obama's Cuba policy. I'm not sure I've mentioned it here before, but I'm planning a trip to Cuba in mid in mid July. I'm not sure what impact this may or may not have, but nonetheless, Mike Gonzalez reports that if America first means anything, it has to mean preventing a virulently anti-American criminal enterprise from perpetuating its existence next door and reproducing itself throughout the hemisphere. And since this is precisely what the previous administration's opening to the Castros accomplished, President Trump is duty-bound to reverse this mistake. Well, he goes on to point out that, in fact, if the New York Times is to be believed, and on this we should, as um, coddling the Castros is one thing the gray lady has been consistent on for 60 years. The administration is about to announce it is reinstating the limits on travel and trade that Obama lifted. Now, this isn't full reversion, but it, it uh, is at least a step in that direction. Obama always said that he was helping Cubans with his opening and in a 
uh, technical way, that's true. Uh, Alejandro Cascro Espin, the ideologically unbending Leninist son of the military ruler Raul Castro, is a Cuban. So is General Luis Alberto Rodriguez Lopez Calejo and the uh, the economic czar in charge of the lucrative tourist trade. Lopez Caleja is also Castro's son-in-law and Alejandro's brother-in-law. Well, U.S. recognition and sanction of the Castros helped these two Cubans enormously in their endeavor to inherit political and economic control when Castro, a spry 85-year-old man, affected a transition from one communist Castro to another in a short nine months. Castro's 11 million other citizens were not helped so much. Uh, Mr. Gonzalez points out uh, they would have had a much better hope of a real transition to a post-communist pro-Castro free Cuba had Obama not promised that in exchange for nothing, the Castro dictatorship would benefit from selling their products in the United States and receiving uh, credits to boot. Now, with Cuba's international benefactor, Venezuela's own despotic government, teetering on the brink of collapse, the Obama lifeline to the Castro family looms even, uh, even larger. People with zero understanding of Cuba have always parroted the godfather stereotypes, so let's put things in a language they'll understand. Raul is Don Corleone. In this version, while Alejandro is Michael Corleone and Lopez Caleja is Tom Hagen. Uh, Sonny and Fredo are played by any number of Miami Cuban Americans with business interests tied to this division of the spoils. The freedoms of their former uh, compatriots uh, is not a concern. Alejandro is widely expected to pull the strings of power when and if uh, the nominal heir apparent, Miguel Diaz-Canal, first vice president since 2013, takes the title of president from Raul in February of next year. And there are precedents for this in the revolution and earlier Cuban history. Cuba's president from 1959 to 1976 wasn't Fidel Castro, but a wealthy lawyer by the name of, well, Torado was the last name. A non-entity who committed suicide in 1983. From 1936 to 1940, the republic's official head uh, was um, uh, a man whose last name was Brew, another wealthy lawyer whose strings were pulled by uh, Mr. Batista. Both of these gentlemen, if you will, with communists uh, associated with communists and let their uh, let them take part in government. Um, a little known fact. Um, uh, but before reading uh, these lines, uh, the the uh, rather reading through the history. Uh, these two played a significant role in the transition in that country. Six months ago, Reuters said uh, he was already established uh, press and Internet freedom as significant concerns. It is often written that he is a Beatles fan and always uh, has been. Um, but not much change has occurred for the people who actually live in the country. Trump has said he's going to reverse the damage done, in quotes, by the previous administration. And that will include travel, the extent of which we're not altogether clear. Now, Mike Gonzalez, uh, also in writing on this subject, uh, asked how dissidents responded to the president's change in Cuba policy. And there was a letter sent by Cuba's main dissident group to the president thanking him for his decision to prohibit U.S. trade with the military, security and intelligence services on the island, their tormentors, as they put it. Uh, serves as a timely rebuke to the previous uh, warm embrace from the previous administration of the Castro regime and those still defending it. He points out that the letter was sent by Beretta Solar on behalf of the group she leads, the Ladies in White. Uh, these mostly Afro-Cuban women suffer constant harassment, beatings and incarcerations at the hand of the Castro regime when they attempt to march on the streets of Havana on Sundays. They march 
uh, because of those they have lost as a consequence of the regime. We'll tell you what that letter had to say in just a few moments. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the dissidents who wrote to the president in response to his uh, announcement that he plans to change the Cuba policy, uh, they wrote, uh, These days, Mr. President, when most of the world responds with a deafening silence to the harassment, arbitrary detentions, beatings, house searches, robberies against peaceful opponents, human rights activists, and defenseless women, your words of encouragement are most welcomed, Solar wrote. We will continue to fight for our rights because we recognize it is our duty to free ourselves, but we can't do it alone. It is also the duty of the freedom-loving people of the world. The United States must continue to be the first defender of those who lack rights and freedoms in the world, she added. Since Saturday, and again, this is the uh, the leader of the Ladies in White. They are mostly Afro-Cuban women who suffer constant harassment, beatings, and incarcerations. They represent the loved ones they have lost through this uh, through this regime. Uh, We will continue to fight for our rights because we recognize it is our duty. Since Saturday, uh, one uh, one day after Trump unveiled in Miami his new restrictions, the letter crystallizes what's at stake for them. One can believe these women, uh, their their um, intimate understanding of the vicious nature of the regime or those who have come out in support of uh, the previous administration's policies who minimize the brutality and economic devastation unleashed upon the Cuban people by the regime. Perhaps the most acidic critic, and I'm quoting now from Mike Gonzalez of the Trump Doctrine, has been the architect of the previous administration's policy, his former deputy Ben Rhodes. In op-eds and tweets since last week, he has zigzagged between insisting that Trump changes won't matter and warning that they will have a chilling effect on trade. So one or the other must be true. He's been joined Joined by a cadre of progressive journalists, especially on NPR and MSNBC, whose uh, leading defender of relations with Raul Castro's Cuba is Andrea Mitchell, reported her uh, show from Havana last week. Trump was uh, unstinting in his attacks on Castro's nearly six decades of uninterrupted military dictatorship of the country. For nearly six decades, the Cuban people have suffered under communist domination. To this day, Cuba is ruled by the same people who killed tens of thousands of their own citizens, who sought to spread their repressive and failed ideology throughout our hemisphere, and who once tried to host uh, enemy nuclear weapons 90 miles from our shores, he said from Miami. The Castro regime has shipped arms to North Korea and fueled chaos in Venezuela, and while in prison innocence, it has harbored cop killers, hijackers, terrorists, and some of them U.S. citizens who are being harbored there. It has supported human trafficking, forced labor, exploitation all around the globe. This is the simple truth of the Castro regime, he went on to say. My administration will not hide from it, excuse it, or glamorize it, and we will never, ever be blind to it. We know what's going on, and we remember what happened, the president said in a clear reference to his predecessor. Well, Obama not only unilaterally ended many restrictions on trade there and travel with Cuba after the announcement in 2014, December, that he would undo the adversarial approach toward Castro of his uh, 10 predecessors. Obama went out of his way to extend his uh, hand to those who pummel people like Solar. He traveled to Havana last May with his entire family, went to a baseball game with the dictator Raul Castro, even did the wave with him while in the stands. At no time did he make a, uh, his warmth uh, 
contingent on his, uh, Castro's promising to ease up on dissidents. And indeed, human rights groups report that political beatings and arrests, nearly 10,000 in 2016 alone, have increased since that agreement was made. The arguments made by Rhodes, uh, Mitchell et al., basically boil down to, sure, Mr. Castro ain't no Thomas Jefferson, but there are worse people, end quote. Well, in an op-ed in The Atlantic on Friday, Rhodes laid much of the blame for Cuba's ruined economy on the United States bar- embargo, rather, of the past six decades six decades, rather than on the fact that communism has been a failed system everywhere it's been tried. Yes, the Cuban government shoulders its share of the blame, Rhodes allowed in passing, but there are dozens of authoritarian governments. We do not impose embargoes on China, on Vietnam, Kazakhstan, or Egypt. He refers to the dissidents once in his uh, piece, uh, uh, calling them the dissidents that the United States supports. Uh, Mitchell made similar comments last week, suggesting at one point that though Castro may not hold elections, world leaders like Turkey's um, Erdogan and the Philippines' uh, Duarte are worse. Now, these comments and others make clear why Castro gets a pass. Erdogan and Duarte represent threats to democracy in their countries, but both are were democratically elected, whether we like it or not, and lead nations that are uh, treaty allies, which makes things tricky. Well, the Castro brothers have not had elections since they took uh, took over rather in 1959 and lead a virulently anti-American regime, which, as Trump said, continues to destabilize our region. One can only decry that the Obama opening to the Castros has been reversed if uh, one is blind to the brutality of the Castro government and the threat it represents to American interests and Cuban lives. Now, as I mentioned, we were planning a, a trip um, in uh, middle of uh, July. We don't know if the changes that Donald Trump plans to make will have an impact on that. This was a ministry uh, trip to Santiago, but we'll certainly keep you posted and keep uh, our ears open uh, as to whether or not that will uh, impact uh, future opportunities uh, to travel to Cuba for ministry. Well, struggling to make progress here at home on campaign promises like tax and health care reform, rank and file congressional Republicans are stepping up their calls for their leaders to cancel or at least shorten their upcoming August recess. I don't know about you, but I don't get a recess in August. Most of us don't. The GOP agenda is about to enter a summer slump with the internal disagreements, efforts by Democrats to sideline legislation all looming. These efforts uh, will enter a new phase on Monday evening when Democrats plan to start slowing down Senate work, even more by making uh, speeches, refusing to let Republicans take procedural shortcuts and so on. In other words, there's an effort to get absolutely nothing done, which at this point the Republicans are you know, helpful in since they're not really pushing to get much done either. The Dems want to stop tax cuts, good health. Uh, Health care reform, border security, their Obamacare is dead with 100 percent increases in um, uh, in the costs. Um, but it, it continues. Well, the House Freedom Caucus, which includes roughly 30 of the chamber's most conservative members, are among the first to support the effort to prevent uh, uh, GOP leaders on the Senate side from going home. The group said earlier this month that Congress has to remain in session this summer to continue working to accomplish the priorities of the American people. The priorities that were uh, campaign promises made by Republicans in both the House and the Senate. The president is eager to notch his first major legislative victory, also a 
appears behind the push. White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney said last week that he supports Congress staying in session, though at least part of, uh, rather through at least part of August. Now, this is the time when presumably they're not just vacationing. They're actually spending time with their constituents, whether or not that's what actually happens. But today, the White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway argued that Congress needs to pass legislation for the good of the country, not with re-election in mind for next year. She made clear that Trump, a businessman and real estate mogul by trade, wants faster results than are being delivered. When he says drain the swamp, it's not just about getting rid of all the crocodile in the water that we don't need. It's about moving at a different pace. She said, speaking on Fox and Friends, I feel very confident that we'll get health care and taxes passed this year. Well, she's more confident than certainly many members of the U.S. Senate. Republican Senate leaders set goals of having an Obamacare replacement bill ready for a vote on the 4th of July. And by the end of the month, uh, at the least... Again, not clear that's going to happen on the Senate side. So while canceling the recess won't help Republicans meet their deadline, a delay could help them pass a bill before returning home to face voters and clear the way for a budget resolution before the September deadline. Passing a budget resolution could also help pave the way for a tax reform, other spending bills they've promised. Still, an Obamacare repeal deal is proving elusive after the House passed its version in May. The Conservative Republican Study Committee has written to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell Connell voicing serious concerns over reports suggesting the Senate is headed in a direction that may jeopardize final passage of the House of Representatives, or rather in the House of Representatives. Congress now has 45 days, legislative days, before September 30th. And while the House has already passed an Obamacare replacement bill, the chamber also initiates the process for money-related legislation like budgets and tax bills. A few Senate Republicans have recently backed the no-recess idea. Uh, One, uh, Senator Steve Daines, a Republican out of Montana, told the Hill newspaper, Congress has no business taking a recess when the people's business remains unfinished. But getting full support for uh, uh, rather from Senate leaders and rank and file members to uh, cancel a recess and almost perennial request is unlikely. Several Capitol Hill sources are saying one problem is that Hill lawmakers historically use August to travel in delegations to foreign countries. So they may already have uh, plans that cannot be reversed or at least at no cost. This year, a trip to China is scheduled through the U.S. Asia Institute and a trip to Israel is being led by the American Israel Education Foundation, according to high ranking congressional aides. I'm sure they're wonderful trips, but the people's business is, of course, the people's business, and the question is whether or not that will be the priority. Now, I imagine uh, members of Congress, uh, members of the Senate will argue that we are doing the people's business abroad, but that may be a hard sell for those who expect more, certainly expected more at the time of the election from uh, Senate Republicans, not to mention their Democratic allies. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, atheists across the fruited plain are rejoicing after a federal judge declared on, uh, well, today, that a cross erected in a Florida park violated the law and must come down. Yet another U.S. District Judge Roger Vinson wrote in his ruling, I am aware that there are a lot of uh, there is a lot of support in Pensacola to keep the cross as is. And I understand and I understand and respect that point of view. But the law is the law, he said. Well, the lawsuit was filed in 2016 by the notorious 
Freedom From Religion Foundation and the American Humanist Association on behalf of four Pensacola citizens. Well, the judge pointed out that Park has hosted tens of thousands of people for roughly 75 years without causing anyone offense until... Well, now, when a city park serving all citizens, non-religious, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim and Christian contains a towering Latin cross, this sends a message of exclusion to non-Christians and a corresponding message to Christians that they are favored citizens. That's certainly not how I've ever interpreted that. But Annie Gaylor, the organization's perpetually offended co-founder, wrote, the original cross was erected in 1941 in Bayview Park. It was replaced uh, with a 34-foot white Latin cross in 1969 by the Pensacola JCs, Judge Vincent, uh, in his ruling, said that the Bayview Cross is part of the rich history of Pensacola and Bayview Park in particular. He said the cross had been the focal point for Memorial Day, Veterans Day services, not to mention Easter sunrise services. However, after about 75 years, the Bayview Cross can no longer stand as a permanent fixture on city-owned property. He was a judge pointed by Reagan, by the way. He directed the city of Pensacola to remove the cross within 30 days, and he also ordered the city to pay the aggrieved plaintiffs $1 in damages. That comes out of a quarter uh, apiece. The American Humanist Association celebrated the judge's ruling. I don't need to quote what they said. We pretty much all all know. Judge Vincent based his ruling on a court case involving a similar cross that suffered the same fate in uh, Georgia, if the cross under review in that county, in uh, Rabin County, violates the First Amendment and had to be removed, the cross here must suffer the same fate, the judge said, looking at a precedent from another state. Oddly, Judge Vinson seemed rather reluctant to rule against the cross. The historical record indicates that the founding fathers did not intend for the Establishment Clause to ban crosses and religious symbols from public property, he wrote. Indeed, the enlightened patriots who framed the Constitution would have most likely found this lawsuit absurd. And if I were deciding this case on a blank slate, I would agree and grant the plaintiffs no relief. But alas, this is not what we have here, he writes. The Deplorable's Guide to Making America Great Again, a book um, recently written, uh, points out that people of faith are facing unrelenting attacks from ruthless uh, atheists, rather, who are bent on eradicating Christianity from the public. No expression, no depiction. Should Christian citizens be relegated to some sort of second-class citizenship? Should they be directed to keep their beliefs hidden inside the church house? We know that under the previous administration, there was a, a deliberate effort to re- rephrase um, the uh, the the idea of the freedom of religion to the freedom of worship, which would have done just that relegate Christians to uh, hide their beliefs within the confines of the church house without any uh, opportunity to express outside. Will they demand that city leaders rename Los Angeles and San Francisco? Should the 10 commandments be chiseled off the doors of the Supreme court? Should references to God be sandblasted from our national monuments? Just how far do the atheists intend to go in this culture, jihad, as uh, Todd Starnes put it, uh, this cultural jihad on our Judeo-Christian values? And that's a rhetorical question, but it seems that that is precisely the goal. Uh, Todd Starnes, uh, by the way, is the author of The Deplorable's Guide to Making America Great Again uh, that uh, deals with this and other subjects of religious liberty and the uh, the, the effort to restrict it altogether. Well, as you know, um, we had a Union Gospel Mission Radiothon recently, and we talked about the fact that the numbers of homeless here at home 
in the city of Portland um, has grown rather dramatically in the metro area. Well, there is a new survey that uh, confirms that fact. The homeless population in Multnomah County increased nearly 10 percent in the last two years. There are now roughly 4,177 people without permanent homes on any given night in Portland, the latest survey shows. And that may, in fact, be a conservative figure. Homeless advocates and city and county leaders have warned that despite more money and attention to the problem, the housing crisis is still forcing many people onto the streets. It's also important to point out that many other uh, cities and states are sending their homeless population to the city of Portland because they uh, suggests we have services to meet their needs. Some officials si- see signs of hope pointing to more people sleeping in shelters or transitional housing than outside for the first time since 2005. Um, Multnomah County Chairwoman Deborah Kafori said in a statement that we all need to work together to help people out of poverty and homelessness. Too many people are sleeping on our streets, but by investing in housing and uh, wraparound services. We are making a difference in the lives of thousands of people every year. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler said the results of the additional money invested last year and the pooling of city and county resources into the Joint Office of Homeless Services are showing. The challenges around homelessness are serious and varied, he went on to say in a statement. This report provides reason for optimism that our strategy is working. Now, if you're driving around the city of Portland, um, it's difficult to find evidence that that is the case, but this is what the mayor is uh, is telling us. The point-in-time count is a federal survey that has to be done every two years. It's designed to gauge the effectiveness of a community's st- uh, strategies to help homeless populations. Now, when we learn that there has been a 10% increase over the last two years, it's difficult uh, to... Um, support the Portland mayor's statement that the uh, homeless services um, is working, the strategy is working, and it's showing because we're seeing uh, larger numbers um, all around the city. Well, the anonymous survey doesn't answer why someone lives on the streets, but builds demographic trends tracking who's being displaced. It's also likely undercounts homeless people because of the transient nature of the population and because it happens in winter when many uh, people try to find somewhere indoors to sleep, whether that's in a shelter or a transition facility. People also voluntarily participate and some refuse or can't answer the questions. Well, this year, January snowstorms and cold uh, delayed the survey over a few days in February. Outreach workers and county staff combed Portland, Gresham and county fringes surveying Uh, homeless people in camps, vans, and shelters when they could find them. From 2017 on, the count will be uh, conducted every year in Multnomah County. The homeless count, also called the point-in-time count, is a snapshot only for a week ending next Tuesday. Outreach workers like um, uh, the ones that uh, scoured our community um, working for Multnomah County, social service agencies, volunteers, and so on, will walk the streets and search parks for uh, for numbers, the full county uh, report on the results will be released in July. Portland State University, which is the county hired uh, to analyze the results, is still working on the findings. But what we know so far is that while the number of people without permanent housing increased from 2015 to 2017, fewer people are actually sleeping on the street. Uh, a 12 percent drop. They, uh, that's a level not seen since 2009. Now, analysts attribute that to the city and county's focus on specific groups for priority in shelters with reductions in the number of women, veterans and people of color sleeping on the street. And the survey showed a 31 percent increase in people staying in emergency shelters and transitional housings. So I suppose you can point to that as a uh, an uptick in the problem. But we're talking about temporary solutions to what 
is apparently a long-term and growing problem. Also, Portland's overall numbers parallel those in cities with similar housing trends. Um, I suppose that's good news and social service disparities. So we are at least trending like others similar to us across the country. Portland's effort to shelter more people also showed up in smaller demographic niches. Uh, For instance, while the number of homeless adult women increased 16 percent from 2015, fewer are on the streets. I think Union Gospel Mission, Portland Rescue Mission certainly can take some credit for that as well. The number of women in emergency shelter doubled, which officials say is a sign that the joint officials uh, rather often Office for Homeless Services goal of getting more women into shelters is helping. Uh, One of the fastest growing demographics is people with physical or mental disabilities or those with substance abuse issues. From 2015, the number jumped 16 percent of all homeless people to make up more than 60 percent of the total population. For people living on the streets and veterans, the number reached uh, up to nearly 72 percent. Also, people of color continue to be one of the largest segments of the homeless population. While they make up more than 40 percent of the total homeless population, people of color represent 29 percent of Multnomah County's residents. They didn't break that down into demographic uh, uh, groups, but they do point out that African-Americans and Asian-Americans also are disproportionately homeless. And that's taking a toll on some communities, according to the report. Native Americans experience homelessness at four times the percentage of the Native American population in Multnomah County as well. Again, the final analysis will be available sometime in July. But what we do know is the numbers are up, uh, reaching them for temporary housing and shelters and so on, apparently is uh, having some success. Five o'clock, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Well, the Supreme Court ruled today that a federal trademark law banning offensive names is unconstitutional. They sided with a rock band whose name has been deemed racially disparaging by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, the 8-0 to zero ruling, in that ruling, the court determined the law's so-called disparagement clause violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Now, the case centered on an Oregon band, the Asian-American band The Slants, uh, which was denied the trademark because his name was considered offensive. Well, the band countered that the 70-year-old law at issue violates free speech rights, and Justice Samuel Alito, in the court's opinion, agreed. The commercial market is well-stocked with merchandise that disparages prominent figures and groups, and the line between commercial and non-commercial speech is not always clear, as this case illustrates. If affixing the commercial label permits the suppression of any speech that may lead to political or social volatility, Free speech would be endangered, he wrote. Well, the victory for the band could have uh, broader implications and be welcome news for the Washington Redskins, for example, embroiled in its own legal fight over the team's name. The trademark office canceled the football team's lucrative trademarks in 2014 after finding the word Redskins is disparaging to Native Americans. Well, that issue in this, the uh, Slants case was a law that prohibits registration of trademarks that may disparage persons, living or dead, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols. A trademark confers certain legal benefits, including the power to sue competitors that infringe upon the trademark. Well, the Slant's founder, Simon Tam, said his goal was to reclaim derisive slurs 
and transform it into a badge of of ethnic pride. But the trademark office said a term can be disparaging even when used in a positive light. If a disparaging term can be used in a positive light, a federal appeals court had sided with the band, ruling that the, the law violates the First Amendment. Well, Alito cautioned in his opinion that the government still has an interest in preventing speech expressing ideas that offend, but he suggested in this majority opinion, it was unanimous, suggested the clause in question was too sweeping. The clause reaches any trademark that disparages any person, group, or institution. It applies to trademarks like the following, down with racists, down with sexists, down with homophobes. It's not an anti-discrimination clause. It is a happy talk clause. In this way, it goes much further than is necessary to serve the interests asserted, end quote. Well, an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, which had supported the ban, called the ruling a major victory for the First Amendment. So we'll see what happens with the uh, Redskins and their effort to retain the name of their football team. Well, here in Oregon, the waters off the uh, coast are now full of strange looking creatures called pyrosomes that set off a glow. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a June blog post, uh, post rather, from the agency's Northwest Fisheries Science Center says the creatures likely are here because of the warm ocean conditions these past three years. Um, pyrosomes have become the center of attention with reports of them washing up on beaches, clogging up fishing and research gear and causing a general sense of befuddlement for people who've uh, been frequenting these waters for many years. Um, but to to our knowledge, they've um, never seen these creatures in such high densities here off the Oregon coast before. So as we uh, anticipate tomorrow, the first day of summer, you might want to keep an eye open on the Oregon and Washington coast for pyrosomes first started appearing in large numbers in 2015, grew exponentially this year. The greatest numbers are 40 to 150 miles offshore. They feed on plankton and natural predators, including dolphins, whales, and fish. They submerge several hundred yards during the day and rise up to the surface at night. And as I mentioned, they um, actually glow. Uh, so if you see some strange um, strange thing off the coast, that may in fact be what you're seeing. Well, as I mentioned, we are just a day away from, or really hours away from the start, the official start of summer. And that means lots of kids are going to be free to do what kids do. There's a new study that looks at um, the activity that young people are engaged in, and they came to the conclusion that teens are getting as little exercise as are 60 years old. And they say you need to blame the schools, although once school is out, I'm not sure who you blame. It looks like teenagers are being lazy is more than just a stereotype. According to the Star-Telegram, a new study conducted by researchers from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore, they looked at more than 12,500 people's exercise habits by having them wear fitness trackers for a week. When they separated that data by age, they found something alarming about teenagers. Activity levels at the end of adolescence are alarmingly low, and by age 19, they were comparable to 60-year-olds. Now, I take exception since I've crossed that bar, but they go on to point out that children between ages 5 and 17 are supposed to get 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise in a day. According to the World Health Organization's guidelines, people 18 and older should get about 150 minutes of exercise every week, about 20 minutes a day. Well, more than 25% of boys, 50% of girls between 6 and 11 
didn't meet those guidelines. And 50% of boys, 75% of girls between ages 12 to 19, didn't meet the threshold either. For school-age children, the primary window for activity was the afternoon between 2 to 6. So the big question is, how do we modify daily schedules in schools, for example, to be more conducive to increasing physical activity? Now, the truth is a lot of kids are out of school by two or they're just wrapping things up. So I'm not sure the schools can be held uh, ultimately responsible. But teens aren't the only ones spending too much time on the couch. Activity trends to or rather tends to increase from the teenage low as adults are in their uh, 20s, but then activity levels steadily drop off at every age level, according to the study. Men tended to be a little more active than women in early mid-life, but then experienced a sharp drop-off themselves, with women trending uh, their activity um, uh, they're uh, as active as men over 60. Well, the goal of these campaigns and the uh, the information being gathered is aimed at increasing physical activity, uh, focusing on um, increasing higher intensive exercise. The study suggests that these uh, efforts should continue time, uh, consider the time of day and also focus on increasing uh, lower intensity physical activity, reducing inactivity. And they're concerned about what life will be like for these kids who start out with very little activity moving forward into adulthood. Also, there's been an effort in Colorado to address the lack of activity, particularly among young kids, by simply saying they shouldn't have the kind of technology that so distracts or preoccupies them that they're less likely to engage in activity. Now, I know when I was a kid, you could be out in the summer all day playing with your neighbors and other kids with very little concern. These days, there are a lot of questions parents have about the safety of their kids. So it's not just a matter of uh, kids not wanting to be active, but their opportunities um, seem to be uh, lessened. But in Colorado, there's a group that wants to ban the sale of smartphones to kids younger than 13 in an effort to not only uh, minimize the exposure to things that are inappropriate, but to encourage them to use their imaginations, and perhaps move a bit more. There's a grassroots effort there to stop this sale. Parents Against Underage Smartphones is collecting signatures to get their initiative on the 2018 ballot. Well, Colorado officials have cleared the language of the proposed ballot measure, according to the Associated Press. Supporters need about 300,000 signatures. The initiative prohibits retailers from selling or permitting the sale of a smartphone to a person under age 18 or to any person who indicates that the smartphone will be wholly or partially owned by a person under the age of 13. So it's sort of usurping the authority of parents and what they may decide to do. They say the retailers must verbally inquire about the age of the intended primary owner of the smartphone prior to the sale, the document, um, the response, and file a monthly report to the Department of Revenue. So they would uh, dispatch or rather deputize the phone sailors to act in their own um, worst interest by failing to sell what they sell to parents who intend to give them to kids that they want the government to say cannot have them. Well, retailers who sell a smartphone for use to a preteen would get a warning for the first offense, but could be fined five hundred to twenty thousand dollars for subsequent violations. So the retailers would be held accountable rather than the parents. Well, the founder of the group, Dr. Timothy Farnham, a board-certified anesthesiologist, said uh, this month that once child, um, once children rather get a smartphone, they change. They go from being outgoing, energetic, interested in the world, and happy to reclusive. They want to spend all their time in their room. They lose interest in outside activities. Well, the truth is that happened long before the smartphone with other uh, devices calling for screen time. 
But he goes on to point out that eventually kids are going to get phones and join the world. And I think we all know that. But little children, there's just no good that comes from that. He's speaking to the Coloradans. So we'll find out what happens in Colorado that wants to hold retailers, which may not be legally possible, accountable for who uses the phones they ultimately sell to adults. 17 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, start with Amen. How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. Beth Guckenberger will join us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back for our final segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the governor's former, well, I guess she's still his girlfriend. Let's see, the former governor's girlfriend. I think that's the right way to put it. She spoke out on Facebook uh, after federal prosecutors declined to file charges against her and the former governor, John Kitzhaber, calling this the uh, decision a vindication, but also apologizing to, in quotes, those I hurt. I am relieved, but not surprised that after a detailed and thorough investigation, federal prosecutors concluded there was no reason to file any charges for criminal wrongdoing, she wrote in a public Facebook post on Saturday night. She apologized to the former governor, Kitzhaber, his staff and campaign team, her clients and colleagues, and many people across this state. She acknowledged errors in judgment. She noted the harm caused by the secrecy of her past marriage to an 18-year-old Ethiopian man in 1997 in exchange for $5,000. You couldn't write this for a soap opera. And while I've been vindicated, she went on to say, of any acts of corruption, that doesn't mean I didn't make mistakes. My naivete and getting into such a high-profile position without being fully transparent about my past caused tremendous harm, end quote. Well, John Kitzhaber, who resigned as governor in 2015, just weeks into his fourth term, has long denied influence peddling allegations. He and uh, his girlfriend were the focus of a 28-month influence peddling investigation after reports that she had received more than $200,000 worth of consulting contracts because of her connection to the governor and others in his office. Well, on Friday, the U.S. Attorney's Office said the investigation into the alleged misuse of former Governor Kitzhaber's and Ms. Hayes' positions for their personal benefit has concluded and no federal criminal charges will be sought. The United States will not comment further on this matter. Well, her Facebook post can be found on that public page, but she went on to uh, say, in, in at least in part, I am incredibly grateful that after two and a half years, the federal investigation is now closed. I am relieved, but not surprised. However, while I have been vindicated of uh, acts of corruption, that doesn't mean I didn't make mistakes. One of the many very difficult aspects of this ordeal has been not being able to apologize because due to the ongoing investigation, I was advised by legal counsel not to make apologies or any statements that had anything to do with the allegations. So now, finally, I want to apologize to those I hurt. The secrecy about my past marriage and so on, she says. It caused an incredible amount of drama and stress and undermined good work that was being done on important issues like reducing poverty, reforming health care, addressing climate change and protecting our environment. For that, I am deeply sorry. The greatest harm was to John referring to the uh, the governor, the former governor, the person I love most in this world, and that has been a heavy burden. I truly believe that, given his, un, his impeccable career in public service, the false accusations of corruption would have had little traction if it had not been for the wrongful actions in my past. I will be forever grateful for John's forgiveness and kindness as we have lived through these tremendously difficult past years. And she goes on uh, from there. Uh, anyway, the uh, governor's uh, girlfriend, the former governor's girlfriend, has uh, uh, submitted on a public Facebook page a rather lengthy apology for the role she played in the resignation, ultimately, of 
her boyfriend, Governor John Kitzhaber. And sad news uh, regarding the life of Otto Warm, uh, Warmbier. He is now dead. He was the former U.S. prisoner uh, of North Korea. He was 22 years old. He was the American student who was detained there, held in North Korea before being returned back to the U.S. earlier this month. He has died. Uh, news of his death follows reports from doctors that he had suffered extensive brain damage was unresponsive to his surroundings. Officials from the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, they treated the student upon his return, labeled his condition as a state of unresponsive wakefulness. And while there was no physical evidence that he was beaten, doctors said that Warmbier had suffered extensive loss of brain tissue, suggesting he had lost blood supply to his brain for a period of time. The North Koreans told U.S. officials that he had suffered from botulism and then slipped into a coma after taking a sleeping pill. But the Cincinnati doctors said that there was uh, their examination rather showed no evidence of botulism, the strong neurotoxin produced by a bacterium. It is our sad duty to report that our son, Otto Warmbier, has completed his journey home. Fred and Cindy, his parents, wrote in a statement surrounded by his loving family. Otto died today at 2.20 p.m. It would be easy at a moment like this to focus on all that was lost, future time that won't be spent with a warm, engaging, brilliant young man whose curiosity and enthusiasm for life knew no bounds. But we choose to focus on the time we were given to be with this remarkable person. You can tell uh, from the outpouring of emotion from the communities that he touched, Wyoming, Ohio, and the University of Virginia, to name just two, that the love for Otto went well beyond his immediate family. We would like to be uh, we would like to thank the wonderful professionals at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center who did everything they could for Otto. Unfortunately, the awful, torturous mistreatment our son received at the hands of the North Koreans ensured that no other outcome was possible beyond the sad one we experienced today. When Otto returned to Cincinnati late on June the 13th, he was unable to speak, unable to see, unable to react to verbal commands. He looked very uncomfortable, almost anguished, they went on to write. And although we would never hear his voice again, within a day, the countenance of his face changed. He was at peace. He was home, and we believe he could sense that. We thank everyone around the world who has kept him and our family in their thoughts and prayers. We are at peace and at home, too. Again, Otto Warmbier, the 22-year-old former U.S. prisoner of North Korea, has died. Just a sad end to that story. But as his parents pointed out in their uh, in their comments, it wasn't likely that any other outcome was possible, sadly. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Rick Langer. He's a co-author in the book that he has uh, written, Winsome persuasion. That's something I think all of us need to focus on these days as we face some difficult challenges in communicating our faith in what is increasingly a hostile environment. It is politically charged. And while we may not be talking about politics, much of what's being said in any context is interpreted uh, in the context of politics. So we'll talk with Rick Langer tomorrow uh, about the book he co-authored, Winsome Persuasion. And then on Wednesday, we'll talk with Dr. Meg Meeker. The book is titled Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Family Needs. I know it's after Father's Day, but we're going to revisit the subject uh, because it's one that's important to not only individual families, but to our culture as well. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with um, Alan Fadling. He's the author of An Unhurried Leader, The Lasting Fruit of Daily Influence.
We are out of time, so I want to take a moment to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing all of and portions and engineering portions of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.